right. Thank you all so much for joining us this week. Um, I share Pamela's enthusiasm. I'm glad to be, uh, be able to speak to you live and in person. If you joined us during the pandemic, then and you, then you've only seen me talk to you all live, then let me introduce you to the bottom half of my body. Uh, you've clearly been missing out. I'm, th this is how excited I am. I wore jeans for, for this occasion. So um, thank you all for, for joining. Um, for those of you who have been here for the last couple of weeks, we are continuing in our series in the Gospel According to Luke. And um, if you recall in particular, in the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on parables that Jesus told that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And as a quick reminder of where we are in the narrative of this book, um, Jesus is uh, in the midst of working his way from his hometown area in Galilee to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately spend the last week of his life before he is executed and uh, raises from the dead three days later. And so we're in the part of this middle journey where he is traveling. He's going from Galilee towards Jerusalem. We're actually kind of close to the end of the middle of the, the gospel account. And while Jesus has been on this journey, making his way over, he has been doing, as Jesus does, kingdom stuff all along the way. And so Luke records Jesus's kingdom stuff as preaching the good news, healing the sick, integrating outsiders, agitating the establishment, you know, kingdom stuff. And the parables that he has been uh, teaching along that way are, are uh, exactly a part of, of all of that kingdom work. And we're actually taking, we're going to do a little bit of a switch. So we've been wrapping our minds around how to interpret these uh, sometimes cryptic stories with meanings that extend beyond what is the obvious surface reading. And if you thought it was going to get easier, uh, it's actually not. We're still dealing with weird cryptic stuff that Jesus said, or at least cryptic for our ears removed from the context that we're in. And so we're going to read um, a, a dialogue that Jesus has um, with the establishment. And this is, this is an, an extended uh, series of statements that Jesus has. So let's read that together. Once on being asked by the Pharisees why the king, uh, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the, the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man, but you will not see it. People will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them for the son of man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day of the, uh, the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. 
Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So... Uh, I believe the, the key questions that scholars who interpret this passage raise is what? So we're going we're gonna to break this down, okay? And thankfully, the key questions that Jesus is uh, reacting to in this uh, passage revolve around some of the basic questions like who, what, when, where. So we'll, we'll go through that together, and that'll be the way that we can understand uh, how this passage um, can be meaningful to us today. If, upon reading this, your first reaction is to think of an apocalypse or think of what we call apocalyptic language, you're not alone. Often interpreters will, will take the things that you just read to, uh, to uh, inspire their imagination for how they think the world will end and the role that Jesus will play in it. There's an entire industry surrounding this type of speculation. Some of the most famous ones that you may be familiar with um, for, for a long time are the Left Behind series, which was originally uh, a bunch of books that have been since adapted into multiple movies, ranging from terrible in quality to also terrible in quality. <laughs> And then there's uh, in just even in just our popular imagination, uh, even if uh, we're not trying to use biblical images to tell, tell stories, nonetheless, there are a lot of movies and shows and literature that evoke the kinds of images that, that we read, right? So there are many movies ranging from outright comedies to dramedies to uh, very dark, haunting stories. And even if those stories uh, that we tell aren't about the end of the world specifically, they may use language from the Bible that has to do with the end of the world for words or phrases like Armageddon, Red Dragon, and Apocalypse, like we're thinking here. So there is, there's a lot, right, that we have culturally in our minds when we approach a text like this. And so what we're going to have to do in order to understand what Jesus was saying here is do a little bit of ground clearing. So let, you know, we'll work through like, Let's be clear on what we think this text is saying and then move from there to how we think it matters to us today. So our, uh, our, as we're going to go through this, like I said, the main framing we can use is some of the questions that the uh, disciples themselves ask in this text, which is who, when, and where. Okay. So first, let's talk about who. And by that, I mean, who is this son of man figure? And why does it matter who that person is or that figure is in the story that Jesus is telling here? Now, if you, well, that, uh, the text, I guess, got misframed. But if you are familiar with the phrase son of God and son of man, if you're familiar with those phrases, then you may have heard an approach towards understanding those terms that's, that's kind of pretty common uh, in, uh, in circles that, that try to interpret these texts, right? That probably what you have heard is that the title son of God, when Jesus uses it about himself, is to emphasize Jesus's divinity. And the title son of man is to emphasize Jesus's humanity. And then you get into debates about which term does he use more? And does that tell you whether he's more human or divine or, or however you want to parse that? Uh, I think that that approach, using those definitions to, to define these terms, is 
uh, not only wrong, I think it's unhelpful. And I think it is very possibly, uh, if anything, uh, ironically, the opposite of how to actually think about both of those terms. And I will break down what I mean. Let's walk through it. So there, let's try to understand how Jesus or the gospel writer uses the phrase son of God to see what's really going on. Because when Jesus or the gospel writers use these terms, they have rich histories that Israelites would have had with these terms that, that predate Jesus. And so knowing what that prehistory is will help us figure out what is actually going on here when Jesus uses these terms. So here's some examples, even just from the gospel according to Luke, that we've covered in previous weeks and months. So, uh, for example, uh, there is a genealogy that the gospel of Luke shares that traces the, the birth of baby Jesus all the way back to the first human uh, himself in the, in the way that the Genesis story frames it. So this is an epic genealogy. And, it's, uh, and so the, the way that it goes, it says that now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi. And then it, it goes on, and then it eventually says, uh, the son of Adam, the son of God. So in this case... We know that Adam, in the biblical sense, is as human as they get. So the phrase son of God being applied to Adam should at least tell us that son of God doesn't inherently have to be a divine term. And it opens the question of, well, okay, well then what, uh, what is the son of God, uh, at least the way that the gospel writers would have been using them? So we can go to uh, a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke where uh, Jesus is, you know, doing the kingdom stuff that we've been talking about. And he is healing people and relieving people of demon oppression. And it says, and demons also came out of many crying, You're, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And then later on in the Gospel of Luke, it says, As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So here, just from these, these collections of passages, you get the idea that what's going on is that the, the phrase son of God can in some ways be tied to whatever it, it means to be the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one, or to even say the son of David. So this, um, the, the, this idea of son of God, the way you should think about it and the way that will help us get through um, this passage, especially distinguishing it from son of man, is to think of it as that phrase should evoke the image of King David the ultimate king in Israel's past who presided over the most glorious era of Israel's history of a united kingdom as he is uh, portrayed here in sculpted work, babysitting an angel after shredding his abs at the gym, right? A glorified image of who David is. That's, that's what they would have been thinking of. And Jesus in his day entered a world in which people hoped for a son of David to end all son of David's or a king to end all kings, the ultimate one through whom God would rule with an everlasting kingdom that no one could destroy. So when you hear the phrase son of God, I think it, I would say it's helpful to think of these other phrases as, as roughly meaning the same thing. Son of David, king of Israel and Messiah. The gospels tend to use those words together. So obviously, 
extremely important, not necessarily divine in and of itself. Although, you know, there, there can be those connotations. So for the question then of son of man, what, is, what does that phrase mean? We, uh, we have to think through um, where this phrase gains its most significant image uh, in the Old Testament itself. Again, um, th- this phrase, it doesn't, doesn't come out of nowhere when Jesus starts using that phrase to describe himself. So in order to understand what this term means, we have to go back to an actual apocalypse. So the book of Daniel is a book in the Bible. It's a, a prophetic story. That takes place, uh, it, the events of it will take place uh, a few hundred years before Jesus, Jesus's time. And in that story, there is a prophet, Daniel, who has a vision. And Daniel chapter 7 has this vision where there are a bunch of beasts. So this, this uh, painting attempts to capture the, the terrifying nature of, of these beasts. So it, it, go, it goes into detail describing them. You'll see four up there. There is a... Um, I mean, like this doesn't even do justice to how they're not, they don't actually correspond directly to like real animals. So one is like a bipedal lion with eagle wings and the mind of a human. That's how it's described. Another one is bear-like, uh, bear-like beast with ribs in its mouth. The third uh, animal is a four-headed leopard with four bird wings. And then the fourth is considered the most terrifying. It has iron teeth, 10 horns, and actually an 11th horn that emerges that could trash talk. It had human eyes and it could rotate its neck 360 degrees. Now that last one I, I made up, that wasn't there. But I bet you were thinking, oh, is that where the exorcist got that from? It's from the Bible, that makes sense. But it is, it's supposed to be a terrifying image. And that's what's going on here. So these four beasts in that chapter, we are told they represent four kingdoms in, in actual history of, of different kingdoms that emerge that become superpowers over Israel. And there are debates around which kingdoms in history those uh, four beasts represent. The point for our discussion today is just to, uh, to acknowledge what happens to those four beasts or the four kingdoms that they represent. The way that the image goes is it describes a fifth figure in this situation that's described as a son of man. And that son of man is actually the, the true, the uh, ruler of the true kingdom, the one that will persevere and the one that God gives all authority to. And the other four kingdoms will be destroyed. So the son of man in this case, as, as the, the interpretation within Daniel 7 actually tells us, is that it represents God's kingdom, the faithful Israelites in that audience who will persevere and they will survive. Uh, they will ultimately survive and be vindicated um, against all of these, uh, these kingdoms of the world. So in this case, too, it helps to think of when you hear the phrase son of man, you might have, uh, you might have seen some gender accurate translations will call it human one. Uh, and I think not only is that helpful uh, to describe it that way, since in the image itself, it represents all the faithful Israelites, uh, not just men, uh, Israelites of all genders, but also human one can help you focus in on the fact that, it, it, like, what are you contrasting human with? We often say, oh, son of man, that's, that's hum- humanity in contrast to divinity. But that's not actually what we just saw in that image, is it? This is a human figure in contrast to animals. 
to beasts. The story that's being told in this image is that the kingdoms of this world are violent and gruesome and they tear each other apart and that is ultimately how they will be destroyed. But in a world of animals, of ruthless, violent animals, there is a human one, the one that truly represents who God is and what God cares about. Now, what's interesting in terms of how we talk about the Son of Man emphasizing Jesus's humanity is that God gives the human one all authority and power over the whole world in this image. God grants the human one an everlasting kingdom and all the peoples all over the world worship the human one. Now, that uh, does not seem something that you would attribute to just a human figure, right? In, in Israel's life, worship would be something that was reserved for God alone. And this actually hints at uh, a world in which perhaps there is some overlap between this human one and God, God's self. And this is why I would say that to leave it at son of God represents uh, Jesus's divinity and son of man represents Jesus's humanity actually gets it wrong. When you hear Jesus describing himself as the son of man and talking about what he is going to do as the son of man, you have to think about this figure and the role that it played in Israel's history as the one true representation of God through whom all of God's people will identify with, be found in, and be vindicated through. By the time you get to Jesus's day, even though originally in this figure, son of, son of man or human one referred to a collective group of faithful Israelites, by the time you get to Jesus's day, it took on a sharp meaning where uh, Israelites in Jesus's circles had focused their hope on one person, a Messiah, who could embody that figure the best. And they would pin their hopes on that person or that leader to be able to help them usher Jesus, uh, or sorry, usher God's people into the kingdom ahead. So when Jesus is saying son of man, he's saying that. So now let's, let's keep going with our, our next question, which is the, the when. So uh, in this passage, um, there is a phrase that is uh, pretty popular. I think you, you may have heard of it, even if you're only a little bit familiar with the story. And that is the, the kingdom of God is in your midst. You may be familiar with other translations uh, of this phrase to say the kingdom of God is within you. Now, when people think of the phrase, the kingdom of God is within you, I think there is a temptation. There has been historically to think that what that means is that the kingdom of God, like to say it's within you, means it's an inner private uh, experience, a feeling that you have uh, about the kingdom. And often, historically, it has meant that that your faith or your religion or your beliefs are something that you you hold inside you. It shouldn't affect the world around you. It should not have any bearing in particular on how you live your life or how you encourage other people to live their lives. If you have been following along in the gospel of Luke, though, you know that that kind of distinction to say that the kingdom of God or salvation is just inner and personal and spiritual, but not also physical and collective and something that takes place in the real world and has tangible consequences for the world, you know that that is a false dichotomy. That's not actually how the gospel of Luke thinks about salvation or the kingdom, right? For Luke, salvation is 
holistic. It is physical, it's spiritual, it is mental, it is emotional. It's something that combines, it, it is an all-encompassing thing. And it is, a, it is a statement about who is in charge of the world. As, a, as evidence in particular about the nature of the, the kingdom of God and how private or public it is, we have some good uh, backs, back and forth dialogues between uh, various people and Jesus. In, in particular, one that's noteworthy is between John the Baptist so this is a, a, a partner of Jesus's in ushering in God's kingdom into the world. So there was a, a, a situation or a point in time when John the Baptist was arrested and he was beginning to question whether Jesus was the real deal. Because if Jesus was the real deal, John the Baptist could rightfully wonder, why am I in prison? So John the Baptist sent his disciples to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So this was Jesus's response. Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This was not a statement about an interpersonal feeling that John the Baptist should have. Jesus could point to the stuff he did and his followers did as evidence that the kingdom of God was in John the Baptist's midst. So when we think of the, the kingdom of God being in your midst. These are the kinds of things we're talking about. Later on, uh, Jesus will also say, uh, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, so again, healing people from oppression, he says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is how he is, uh, is framing our understanding of the, the implications of the kingdom. Now, you could ask then, okay, well, if it is something that is supposed to uh, manifest itself in the actual world that I experience, um, uh, the disciples and Jesus's detractors could raise the question of, well, where is it? Where is it that I can see it? How do I know what, what's going on? And Jesus, even in this passage, says, don't go looking for, for these kinds of these people who claim these things. There are very simple, straightforward ways of knowing that the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's doing the kingdom stuff that we've been talking about, where love, justice, peace, mercy, forgiveness, all of those things reign in, in our midst. The most helpful way, I think, to understand how to square that with our reality and the reality of the people in Jesus' midst, where it feels like um, God's kingdom is not reigning, if that's how you would describe it, is this, uh, this technical term called inaugurated eschatology, which we have uh, talked about uh, a few times if you're a longtime sparker. Eschatology is talking about the end, things that happen in the end or where things are ultimately headed. Inaugurated is just to say that the end has begun. The way Jesus describes the, uh, the kingdom of God is that it's something that is breaking into the world in his own life and his work and his death and his burial and resurrection. He describes it as something that is breaking into the world where love and peace and justice and mercy exist. But he also acknowledges that it is not fully here yet. There is a day coming, the way Jesus would describe it, where God's kingdom will be everywhere and there will be nothing left but love and peace and justice and mercy. But in the meantime, as God is working through God's people, if you want to know where you can find God's kingdom, 
you look for love and justice and peace and mercy with those of us who worship and trust the one who embodies that the most at the front lines. So this is what we're, we're talking about when we talk about the son of man coming and the kingdom of God coming and how it can be confusing to say like, what signs should I look for when that kingdom of God is coming? It doesn't actually have to be as complicated as Jesus's disciples are making it out to be. So that leads us to the final question that we're going to talk through today to help round out this perspective that we're talking about. So the last one is where, where is this kingdom going to manifest? And the reason I frame it that way, one is because the disciples ask that at, at the end of the text, they say, where, where Lord will this happen? But also because, um, the, there's this, the question here is what do we make of where these things that the, that we're talking about will occur, right? Lightning that lights up the sky and, um, events that are like the Noah, the flood during Noah's time that destroyed everyone, like the fire and sulfur that rained down from heaven, dis destroyed everything. And this phenomenon of like two people being together and then one of them just being gone and then the other one staying back. So like we talked about earlier, I think usually when we see words like uh, phrases like these, we think apocalypse. We think that uh, Jesus is talking about the end of the world. And uh, we have traditionally read this then as a, a series of warnings about hell. Like basically, if you believe in Jesus, because if you don't, what will happen to you is uh, you'll be destroyed uh, like the everyone during the flood of Noah. You'll be destroyed by everybody who's left behind in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's that's traditionally how we've looked at it. But again, just like those phrases, son of God and son of man, they, the, those words and phrases that seem apocalyptic that we just described, they have a rich history in Israelites' minds. When they use those words, they mean certain things, and we're going to get lost if we're not willing to follow them through their usage of those words. So here's, here's uh, what I'm going to walk us through. There are, there are many, many times in the hundreds of years leading up to Jesus where different prophets in Israel's history used that language to describe something that was going to happen to their audience in its near future. Okay. So you may even be familiar with some of these languages again, just because of how popular they are in our consciousness. So this is the prophet Isaiah. Again, we're talking several hundred years before the time of Jesus where uh, Isaiah will say, behold, the day of the Lord comes uh, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So there, this, this prophet is using this kind of language to describe an event in its near future. We know from the text itself and from history that it was describing the destruction of the Babylonian empire that had held Israel captive for an extended period of time. So this was a way of saying that those kingdoms of the world that seem like they're going to destroy God's kingdom, they themselves will be destroyed. So that was language being used to describe the destruction of an actual empire that existed. Another example is uh, from Ezekiel, another prophet, an, another time, uh, centuries before Jesus. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. This was describing the destruction of Egypt. 
another uh, empire of the world that held power uh, over the, the area of uh, Israel's kingdom. There's another prophet uh, at a different time who says, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This, in this case, this is describing Israel. It's describing the destruction that Israel as a corrupt kingdom will experience at the hands of Assyria. So this is where the, the northern part of Israel gets taken off into captivity. So when, when Israelites use this kind of language, this is basically like their stock photos that they have to describe the experience of being overtaken by God's enemy kingdoms and the hope that they have that one day those corrupt kingdoms will be destroyed as a part of their own corruption, as a consequence of their corruption. So when, when we see Jesus using this kind of language, it gives us the question, okay, so what kingdom is Jesus talking about meeting its destruction in this case? So in, uh, in a few weeks, when we get to Luke chapter 21, we'll go through this in much more detail. But for now, I will, I'll tease it for you. This is how um, when Jesus actually enters Jerusalem in the last week of his life, um, th this is a, a discussion that happened. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple, so this is the Jerusalem temple, was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And that the extended passage there in Luke chapter 21 uses very much the same language that we're talking about in our passage today in Luke 17. So this is the, the way we need to think about this is that th there is a judgment that is coming upon the establishment of Israel. This destruction is uh, is going to be the kind of thing where you know again when we when the Israelites use this kind of language, where it's like the stars are going to go out or it'll be flashes of lightning from sky to sky. That's not the end of the world, like the end of the space time continuum. That's the end of their world as they know it. That's what they're describing. And what Jesus is saying is that for you, for for all of us in this land in Jerusalem. There is a time coming, especially for the establishment, where you will, you will meet the end of your world as you know it. And the warning here is that when you do kingdom stuff the way the kingdoms of the world do, through violence, coercion, power, fighting uh, swords with swords, the ultimate end to that strategy is destruction. This is what Jesus means in other passages when he says, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. The kingdom weapons that Jesus has been talking about his whole life are the very ones that we keep coming back to over and over. Peace, love, justice, mercy. And if those people in his midst fail to grasp that kingdom, then what they're about to encounter is the destruction of the Jerusalem establishment and the temple at the hands of the Roman army. So there is um, the, we know that historically within a generation of the, the context that we're talking about here, the Roman army does come in and destroy the Jerusalem establishment and destroys the temple and the life of Israelites, the world that they have is never the same ever again. 
this might give us a little clue into the the seemingly cryptic passage at the end where it says where uh, where lord and he replied where there is a dead body there the vultures will gather this could be wordplay where vulture actually the word for vulture could have double meaning it could be that or an eagle and uh the roman army in that day a prominent symbol as part of their their dominion and their military power was an eagle and what jesus could be doing here is alluding to the fact that there is there is destruction coming and it is coming at the hands of the roman empire and you can choose how you want to respond to that you could become like the kingdoms that are oppressing you you could become cruel and coercive you could fight violence with violence or you could seek a better way a true way that will allow you to persevere through this kind of destruction it is uh i think it's hard for us to grasp that this passage with this apocalyptic language is about a specific event with a specific context because we're so used to thinking of the gospel message as uh, believe in Jesus or you'll go to hell. That's like that. That's kind of the, the standard way. But again, those, that's not the point that Jesus is making in warning his disciples in this context to be ready. And to be clear, I, for example, did not become a follower of Jesus because I was afraid of hell. I became a follower of Jesus because God is good and Jesus is beautiful. And, and if, uh, if you read passages like this and you find out that it's not about hell after all, and you're like, well, uh, why, why should I? follow Jesus then, I would say like rethink the incentives for why you why you want to join the, the Jesus movement anyway, because I mean, if you look at Jesus's life, the things that he did according to the go gospel of Luke, I would say that's some stuff that I want to be a part of. I want to be doing that kingdom stuff too. The reality is as well, we don't know when these events, these events that uh, are like world ending for us will ever occur. The pandemic that we have been living through for the last 16 months is a great example of our inability to foresee these world ending or life altering uh, events. In other gospel accounts, Jesus says that even he himself does not know the exact date or time of this destruction that he is describing, which that should help you emphasize his humanity, that there even he has experienced limits to his understanding. But part of what he says is that's not the point. The point is not so you can plan in advance for when these things, these inscrutable things will happen. The point is, what are you going to be about? What are you going to be doing while these things happen or don't happen? The whole point of these, the what we call preparedness parables or these preparedness texts, texts to say there's uh, there's some destruction coming, get ready. They are uh, the point is not to make you terrified of the future. The point is to highlight what you can do right now in advance of whatever happens in the future. And I know, too, that there are a range of people here and sparkers who are at, at various different points on how much they're bought into the Jesus kingdom and what it's about. And I get that. Um, some of us have uh, maybe would say we have no relation to, to Jesus or Jesus's kingdom. Some of us would say I've been uh, a part of Jesus's kingdom from uh, the day I was born. I would say regardless of, of where you're at uh, in that journey, the the underlying emphasis in these passages is that now 
is always the right time to do the right thing. Now is always the right time to pursue justice and love and mercy and forgiveness. Jesus is inviting us to a life where, where we spend our time doing kingdom work, not because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't, but because it's who we are. It's what we do. Jesus does what he does because that's how kingdom work is for him. And the idea, the hope that Jesus is putting forward in this passage is that's who you are too. There's a song that we sang together last week that I think captures some of the idea of, of um, what you're about, whether no matter what happens. So remember the, the verse, good God almighty, I hope you'll find me praising your name no matter what comes because I know where I'd be without your mercy. So I keep praising your name at the top of my lungs. This is uh, this song and this lyric embodies what we're talking about in this passage. It is a way of life that sings no matter when the son of man comes or when the day of the Lord arrives or whatever that looks like when the Lord visits us, you know where you can find me. That is the hope that Jesus is putting forward in this passage. This is the time where we can all come together in communion to celebrate Jesus's life, Jesus's death, Jesus's burial and his resurrection, his teachings, his spirit, the binding force that brings us all together. You know, kingdom stuff. We do this together um, by, um, by following in the tradition established from Jesus's own day where the scriptures say, for in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. <laughs>